0: All right. Welcome back to the Listener's Commentary on the New Testament. We are going to be looking at a large section of Titus chapter one in this recording. But first, let me just mention that on my website, listenerscommentary.com, there is a free ebook, about a 30, 40-page ebook, all aimed at helping you dig in and study the Bible for yourself. It gives five practices for how to hear and understand the Bible well, as well as five practices for how to heed and apply the Bible to your life well. It's called Bible and Life. It's completely free. Just put in your name and your email address, and you'll get instant access to that free ebook. So that's over at the website, listenerscommentary.com. All right, in this session, we're going to be looking at Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 16. And Just to set that in context, the first four verses of Titus are an extended introduction and greeting in which Paul kind of highlights his calling, highlights his commission, and in doing so, forecasts some of the major themes of the letter of Titus. And then immediately what happens in verse 5 and following, the section we're going to look at in this recording, is Paul gets right down to business by calling Titus to appoint elders in the churches on the island of Crete. And so before we look at the details of the text, let's just draw out a few things that are here in this text as well as show up in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where Paul does something similar about elders in general. So the first is this. Notice that in verse 5 he refers to these leaders as elders, but in verse 7 he calls them overseers. And this shows us that these two words, elders and overseers, are interchangeable and refer to the same group of people. So the leaders in the church are the elders or the overseers of the church. The word elder refers to an older man, it was a regular title for leaders in the synagogues in the Jewish world. And sometimes, particularly in Uh, Israel, they had even influence in the town. So you'll see the elders and the gospels are some of the key leaders and authority figures in town. The word overseer refers to a role of looking after and giving protective care to a group of people or to a person. We'll talk more about this word when we come to it in verse 7. So that's the first observation. Second observation is that uh, elders are present in the churches from very early on. Some have wrongly assumed or asserted that the instructions to elders that we find here in Titus as well as in 1 Timothy reflect some sort of later development in the church when the church was more organized and formalized and all of that. But that's just false. Paul was actually appointing elders in the church clear back on his first missionary journey. You can see that in Acts chapter 14, 23. And the church in Jerusalem had elders as early as Acts chapter 11. This way of organizing the church to care for people was from very early on, probably right from the start, uh, because it likely followed the pattern or the precedent of the Jews who had elders in their synagogue. So it wasn't something that they had to finally think, we got to come up with some leadership structure. They just were modeling what they knew right from the very beginning. And then the third general observation is that in the New Testament, elders sort of function like the papas, if you will, of the congregation, who give direction and provision and provide care to the people of the church. In fact, I'll add a document to the study hub with some more details about elders and eldership from the New Testament. But what we see throughout the New Testament is that the elders are the ones who teach. They refute those who contradict. They give leadership and direction. We see them oversee the distribution of money and uh, decide how to apply the gospel and set policy for specific issues. Uh, They're supposed to pray over and equip the saints. And so, They are sort of the shepherds or the papas of the congregation who provide care and oversight and direction. So, of first importance for Titus, in finishing up the church planting work on the island of Crete and getting those churches functioning in a healthy, sound way, Titus needs to appoint elders. And that's where Paul begins here in his instructions to Titus to carry on the work. So, Paul writes this in verse 5. He says, For this reason... I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains, finish the work, right? Get those churches really up and functioning in a full healthy way, set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. And so Titus is supposed to, get the churches organized, get leadership in each church so that the churches could be cared for. There could be people to oversee and protect those churches. And notice it says appoint elders in every city. So it's not just one church on the island of Crete. They've planted churches in a number of the cities on the island of Crete. And Titus is uh, responsible for all of them and getting all of them functioning in a healthy sort of way. And then from that point, what Paul does is he gives a description of the character traits of elders. And it's very similar to uh, the list that we find in 1 Timothy chapter 3. So Paul writes in verse 6, namely, if any man is beyond reproach, this word beyond reproach is a, not the same word, but a synonym for the word that's used and translated the same way in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And just like there, it functions as the header to the list. This is the general quality Paul wants. Men that are beyond reproach, who it's like, oh yeah, of course he's going to be uh, shepherding the church because of the kind of person he is. It's just sort of an a course sort of thing. So this is the header to the list, uh, beyond reproach. And then Paul uh, addresses immediately, the family. He says, uh, here's some things that are important to being beyond reproach. The husband of one wife, a Christian leader must exemplify marital fidelity and sexual purity. Literally, this is a one woman man. And we should not overlook the fact that in both Timothy and Titus, this is the very first character trait mentioned as Paul sets out to describe an above reproach elder. And the reason for that is because in Greco-Roman culture, Just like in much of modern culture, uh, they reveled in great sexual looseness. It was not uncommon for a well-to-do man in Greco-Roman culture to have a wife who could bear him legitimate offspring, as well as a consort to enjoy at dinner parties, and then to visit the brothel for sheer pleasure if he wanted to. Well, elders must not be like that. They must be a one-woman man. Also, it's important to remember that this phrase, as we noted in 1 Timothy, assumes by Paul that elders would be male. Uh, there in 1 Timothy, when Paul addresses not just the elders, but later in the letter, Paul addresses the, an issue about widows, and he refers to the quality of those who are widows indeed, and he says they need to be wives of one husband, a one-man woman. And that indicates that this uh, idiom, this phrase, is not just a general phrase for, fidel- for faithfulness and loyalty, But it's actually gender specific. And so the husband of one wife is a one woman man, and it assumes that the elders are going to be male. Then Paul continues on the family theme saying, having children who believe, not accused of indecent behavior or rebellion. So there's two parts to this. His children are believers. That is, they have followed his example in following Jesus. And the second part is that they have a good reputation. They're not accused of indecent behavior, which refers to like debauchery, wild living, or rebellion. And it's actually the same word that's going to be used down below in verse 10 for those who are opposed to the faith and turning people away from the faith. And so the elders' uh, children, even older adult children, uh, need not to be accused of this. Then he restates the general principle as really the basis or the reason why all this matters. He says in verse 7, for the overseer, notice four is explaining, for the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward. That's why this matters so much. And as we noted in the introduction, that the elders are described here as overseers. And this word is a compound word that's made up of two words to watch over to look after, to pay attention over. They're the ones who pay attention over, who watch over the church. And this particular word, overseer, was used of government officials. It was sometimes used of physicians who cared for the sick. It carries this idea of looking after the needs of and providing protective care for. That's one of the things that captures the the role or the, the job of the elders. And he, again, restates that they must be above reproach. And this time he says, as God's steward. A steward was a manager within a household. So overseers serve within God's household, managing and overseeing affairs on God's behalf. That's the force of this word. They don't do it for themselves. They're not looking after their own thing. They are simply managers within the household of God. And therefore, they must not, according to verse 7, they must not be self-willed. Since he's an overseer or a manager of God's household, he can't do his own thing. He's responsible to do God's will. He's got to follow God's plans because it's God's household. He serves the owner of the house and that owner is God himself. And so, and they can't be self-willed. And that also includes the connotation of arrogance and self-importance. They can't they can't elevate themselves. They can't you know, puff themselves up. They're not self-willed and self-promoting. Also, they must not be quick-tempered. This word only appears here in the New Testament, and it refers to what it says, not being quick to get angry, not hot-headed. And then Paul says, not overindulging in wine. And again, this is the same word that's used in 1 Timothy 3, and it's the only two places where it's used in the New Testament. It literally is not about the wine. The idea is not a heavy drinker, not prone to drunkenness, you know, not the kind of guy that hangs out at the wine table or uh, by the beer cooler, just drinking one after another, not overindulging wine. Then not a bully. Uh, the word bully, plague taste, refers to one who uses force to get what he wants. That's the idea of the word and so doesn't just don't think of one that's you know always beating people up. think of someone that uses the force of their will or uses a loud voice and issues threats and ultimatums who's you know who tries to intimidate other people to get what he wants. That's the idea. in fact, in 1 Timothy 3, in that list there, it's contrasted with forbearance and gentleness. And so that indicates that he must not be quick-tempered. He must not be domineering and heavy-handed, and he must not you know, always have to get his own way. Not a bully. And then not greedy for money. Peter actually mentions the same sort of thing in 1 Peter chapter 5. And so it indicates that uh, there's this temptation. when, you, And it, we know it's true that when you are in a position of authority, it's easy to kind of do it in self-serving ways or for self-serving re- reasons. And elders must not be that kind of guy. They must not be in this for financial gain or some other sort of personal gain. And then from there, Paul shifts to some positive traits. Beginning in verse 8, he says, but hospitable and the word hospitable is a compound word that literally means stranger lover. But in a culture where hotels and inns were infrequent and they were often dangerous or morally suspect, uh, to be hospitable referred to someone who hosted people in their homes, that was the idea. And it was a high cultural value in the broad Greco-Roman world. It became a widespread and important value among the early Christians. So if a fellow Christian comes to town, the good and right thing to do was to put them up in your home. You don't want them to stay at a hotel or an inn because those places are dangerous and they're often corrupt. And so host people in your home. And if there are other practical ways of showing care for them, well, do that as well. And elders need to model this key trait. The next positive trait he mentions is loving what is good. That is, they are drawn to and they love things that are positive and beautiful and good. That's the idea. And this trait was actually viewed as a virtue even by the pagans. The word was frequently used on inscriptions in praise of worthy people. So elders need to model that. Love what is good. And then next on the list is self-controlled. And the word means more like sensible reasonable. It refers to someone who's level-headed, not irrational, not out of control, right? Like they're sensible and they're reasonable and they're level-headed. And then Paul says righteous, which here in this context has to do with the way you treat people. In fact, it's regularly portrayed in the Old Testament as a trait of a good king because he brings justice and righteousness to people. So he treats people right. Uh, He's just and upright in all his dealings. Next is holy. And what's important to note is that this isn't the normal word for holy. The normal word is hagias. This is hasias. It's actually a couple of different words in there, and it fo- it focuses more on someone's duty and devotion to God. So it's the idea of being devout or Godward, living before God and under God, and recognizing that my life is exists for God, holy. And then Paul mentions disciplined. And this is the idea of self-discipline or self-control, being able to do what needs to be done when it needs to be done, and having their life and their behavior under control, that they are self-disciplined and self-controlled. And then after listing off both the negative and positive traits that he does, Paul continues in verse 9, saying this, that these elders, these overseers, ought to be people who are holding firmly to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching. That is, they have a strong attachment to, they hold firmly to it, they hold tightly to the faithful word. That is, the trustworthy message, the message about Jesus. And the standard of that is the original teaching, the teaching of Paul, the teaching of the apostles, these Elders and overseers hold tightly to that teaching and that message. And he doesn't hold firmly to this this teaching merely for his own benefit. He does it also for the benefit of others. So look at the second half of verse 9, where he says, so that this is the result of, or the goal, the purpose of holding firmly to this is so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. So he's gonna be able to exhort in sound doctrine. He's gonna hold to this word so that he can actually pass on that word. And exhort has the sense of encourage. It even means urge or call to action. And this reminds us that sound doctrine isn't just for information's sake, it has behavioral consequences. In fact, the idea of sound literally is healthy. Doctrine is teaching. So this is healthy teaching, teaching that's good for people, good for human flourishing. And so to exhort in sound or healthy teaching is to call people to live according to it. And then also he's got to be able to refute those who contradict, which means to show the air of, to point out um, the falsehood and the false ideas. And notice this is supposed to be a quality of elders, of church leaders, that they could do this, that they, they can they hold to the, the faithful words so that they can actually pass it on to others and clarify things where people are wrong. And why is being able to do this so important? Well, look at verse 10. Well, the reason for that is because, or for, there are many rebellious people, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families teaching things that shouldn't, they should not teach for the sake of dishonest gain. And so they need to be faithful to the word because there are plenty of people who aren't, who are rebellious, empty talkers, deceivers. And he mentioned specifically those of the circumcision. Well, who's that? Well, it could be Jews in general, uh, but probably more likely in view of the context and the way this uh, this phrase or word is used elsewhere in the New Testament probably refers to Jewish believers who are trying to force Jewish uh, traditions and Jewish ideas even on Gentiles. That's the way the word is used elsewhere in the New Testament. And so, for example, Acts 15 and Galatians 2, you see the same phrase referred to A group of Jewish believers who are trying to get Gentile believers to be circumcised and keep the Old Testament law. Interestingly, according to Galatians 2, uh, Titus was actually exhibit A of a faithful but uncircumcised Gentile believer at the Jerusalem conference. And so here he is on the island of Crete facing people who. Uh, are in rebellion to the conclusions of the council and the teaching of the church, it seems. And they're trying to force these same sort of Jewish ideals and traditions on Gentile believers. And Paul says they need to be silenced um, because they're upsetting whole families. And while the word or phrase could refer to families, it's literally just households. And it probably refers to congregations who met in houses. So it's not necessarily just families. It's upsetting whole households. That is house churches. And they're, they're doing this by teaching things, he says, for their own dishonest gain. In contrast to the elders who must not be driven by dishonest gain, these people that Paul is pointing out are being driven by dishonest gain, getting control, getting authority, maybe getting people to support them, getting rich off of others. Who knows what it is, but that's the idea, and they must be stopped. Paul then goes on in verse 12 and quotes a famous Cretan poet to emphasize the tendency towards falsehood and brutishness among the Cretans. Look what he says in verse 12. He says, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. This is actually a quote from a Cretan poet, Epimenides, from about 600 B.C., And including this quote really appeals to their sense of shame versus honor in their culture. And it seeks to call out the false teachers and really any who would follow after them, hopefully to wake them up. You're falling prey to the age-old testimony about your own people, about how uh, brutish and lazy and evil they actually are. And because this is their tendency, Paul instructs Titus in the rest of verse 13. He says, "'For this reason, reprimand them severely.'" And reprimand means more reprove. It doesn't just mean to scold or to chide them or to call them out. The word is actually used up above in verse 9 to describe the task of elders and why they need to know the truth. So it's the idea of pointing out error, uh, helping them see the falsehood of their teaching. So reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. That's the goal. The goal isn't to just embarrass them or humiliate them or even punish them. The goal is to lead them to soundness in the faith. They need to know where they're wrong and they need to know what the truth is so that they can be sound and healthy in the faith. And then Paul contrasts this with kind of the Jewish ideas that are lying behind some of the the problems that are stirring up trouble in the churches. He says in verse 14, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. And this fits well with the emphasis on the circumcision up there with some sort of Jewish believers who are trying to lead people into uh, what he calls commandments of men and Jewish myths. And we don't know exactly what he refers to by that, but it actually sounds like maybe even some things that even go beyond what the Old Testament teaches. We're not totally sure what lies behind it, but the result of what these rebellious people are doing is they're trying to turn people away from the truth. And so Titus has got to kind of address that, confront that, reprove that, point out the error of their ways. And then Paul says this in verse 15. He says, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving... Nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Now, whenever we read a passage in the New Testament, or really anything we're ever reading, it's really important we have to read this in context, right? So to understand what he means by, to the pure, all things are pure, we need to look at the context, and what we see is that Paul is calling Titus to address especially some sort of Jewish perversion of the truth of the gospel that includes Jewish myths, And based on what we know about this kind of problem elsewhere, here's what we can guess. It likely includes things like uh, avoiding certain foods and other maybe uh, prohibitions, keeping the ritual calendar. Sometimes it includes in the New Testament things even about um, like visions and sort of Jewish mysticism and all of that. We don't know exactly what it is here in uh, in the island of Crete because we don't have enough data, but there's something like that. In fact, we even hear Jesus refer to specific Jewish traditions as the commandments of men. In say, Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. So it's that sort of thing that is going on in the churches that Titus is shepherding. And so it's what motivates Paul to say what he does here about being pure and all of that. So, what does he mean by to the pure, all things are pure? Well, this is actually the word for clean. So, to the clean, all things are clean. That is, to those who have been cleansed in Christ and by Christ, they don't need other ritual purity or other cleansing laws or other sorts of Jewish traditions in order to actually be clean and to be full participant in God's covenant. They don't need that. And we're assuming, based on what Paul says here, that it's those kinds of things that are being taught by the troublemakers on the island of Crete. And such ritual and external cleansing laws aren't actually going to do anyone any good who are actually defiled and unbelieving. Because since they're unbelieving, they don't believe in Jesus Messiah, they don't trust him, then they're defiled and unclean as it is because now uh, being cleaned is achieved in the Messiah. And this word defiled that's used here in this verse Uh, isn't common in the New Testament. It's a unique word, but it is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It's used 32 times just in Leviticus. And it's the word that describes a person who makes himself richly unclean. And so that seems to be the idea. Somebody who's just unclean, well, they're going to be unclean because they haven't believed the gospel. And that's why it specifies they're defiled and unbelieving. And so they're corrupted and unclean specifically because they don't believe the gospel. But those who do believe the gospel, well, they're clean, they're pure. And so th- all things, all foods are already clean and pure for them. They don't need any other sort of a Jewish idea or commandment of men to make them clean before God. And thus Paul finishes off his indictment of them by saying this in verse 16, he says, they profess to know God, these false teachers, these rebellious people, these troublemakers in Crete, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient. And worthless for any good deed. And so Paul sees in them that the the problem lies really deeper than whatever commandments have been that they're teaching. The problem lies in the fact that their heart is not aligned with God and his ways, and thus they are disobedient. And Paul uses some pretty strong language for them. Now, before we leave this section, let me just offer a little bit of a reflection here. Even though this is uh, addressed to Titus, about the need to appoint elders in the churches on the island of Crete, the description of the elders and their character really presents for us an ideal model of godliness elders are supposed to be concrete examples of what faithful discipleship to Jesus look, looks like. And so when we read through this list, even though it's about elders, we can read through it meditatively and reflectively and begin to let it to kind of set a direction for our own discipleship to Jesus as well. This is the kind of people we are supposed to be. We are supposed to be holy, righteous, self-controlled. We are to be people who love what is good. We hold firmly to the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching of the apostles. We're people who are hospitable and care for others. This is who we are. Even some of the negative traits are very challenging for us to think about. That Do we use uh, force and intimidation and force of will to try to get what we want? Do we do things because we're greedy for attention or celebrity status or wealth or some other sort of personal gain. Um, are, are we quick-tempered? Are we self-willed? These traits really aren't just for elders alone. They're to be a pattern of what a mature, healthy disciple of Jesus looked like. And so it provides really a model of godliness for all of us. And I find uh, these traits to be very challenging for me personally as I reflect on them. I think they can be challenging for each one of us as we say, what what does it look like to be a godly man or a godly woman living in an ungodly world? That's the kind of people the elders are supposed to be. And that's really what all of us as followers of Jesus are to be as well. All right, thanks for tuning into this session of the Listener's Commentary. The Listener's Commentary is a listener-supported Bible-teaching ministry that is only possible to be given away for free because of the generosity of people just like you. So thanks a ton for those of you who faithfully pray for and financially support this ministry. And if you have been impacted by this ministry in any sort of way, would you prayerfully consider supporting this ministry so that its reach and its impact can. Continue to grow and expand. More people can dig in and learn the scriptures. In fact, I just got an email this week from uh, someone who became a brand new believer in 2021 and um, was struggling to read and understand the Bible. And by the recommendation of somebody else, learned about the listener's commentary, and it's really helped him deepen his faith, and deepen his understanding of the scriptures, and I want to see that story replicated over and over again. And so, would you pray for and even prayerfully consider supporting this ministry? Thanks a ton in advance for your support.